0: Back in Romans chapter 13 again this morning, Paul's talking about the way that we are to live our lives as the children of God. Those who have placed our faith and trust in the gospel for salvation, we have been set apart from the world and set apart to God. How are we to live that sanctified life? If I have been set apart, sanctified from the world, and i have been set apart to god then the way that i live ought to be different from the world and it should reflect the very character of god whom i've been set apart to peter says this in 1 peter chapter 1 verses 14 through 16 he says as obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance but like the holy one who called you be holy yourselves also in all your behavior Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We are to be holy because God is holy. Now what does that mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be sanctified. Our lives are now to reflect the very very character, the very nature of God, because that is now who we are. We are those who belong to God. In light of that, we come to this section where we see that we are to be offering ourselves up to God as a sacrifice. Paul said a a living, holy, acceptable sacrifice. Just like Peter said in that section I read, we are to forget the things of the world, things that were ours before, the things that we lusted after in the world before. And as Paul told us in those first verses of chapter 12 of Romans, we are to be transformed into the very character of God. That's what this section is really all about that we're in right now. Seeing as how the life of the believer ought to be different from the lives of those in the world as we live our sanctified life, he's been showing us what some of those differences are. He's been giving us commands of how we are to live now. We saw in chapter 12 that that means that we don't consider ourselves t- too highly We don't think too highly of ourselves, but we consider others to have priority over ourselves. The first thing that he talked about after saying that was the way that we are to use our spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are gifts that the Holy Spirit has given each and every believer for the edification of the church. How do those two things relate? Well, as we think of others more highly than ourselves, we utilize the gifts that God has given us for their edification, the building up of the body of Christ, the building up of one another. I use my gift so that you are edified. You do the same for me and for everyone else here. That is how the gifts work. That's how they function, how the church is to function. After he talked about those, he listed out several things that, about how we are to behave towards one another. as as well as towards the rest of the world, not just towards one another. He mentioned things that pertain to others in the world as well. And again, these are not things that characterize the world. He talked about abhorring what is evil, but clinging to what is good. He talked about contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And then as we came into chapter 13, we got to everyone's favorite subject. He talked about be in subjection to the governing authorities. He told us we were to pay our taxes because God is the one who establishes that authority. And when you resist the authority that God has established, you're opposing the very ordinance of God. All of these things are a part of what living the sanctified life looks like. All of these things that he's presented so far are what are to characterize us as believers. Now as we go th- we got through verse 7 in our last study where Paul finished up talking about government, he told us in verse 7, "'Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor.'" We are to pay what is due, taxes, customs, the proper fear and respect, and honor— And we usually have a hard time with that honor one, right? Well, there certainly isn't any honor due to anyone in our government, we might sit there and say. But yes, there is, because they function as the servants of God. They may not believe in God. They may not honor God. They may hate God. And they may hate us because we're the ones that follow God. But they are still due honor, not because of who they are, but because of who God is and the role that He has placed them in as His servants for good. Again, this is part of living the sanctified life. We are set apart from the world and set apart to God. So, now we come to verse 8. And the next thing that Paul says is this, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Some people see this verse as a change from one topic to another. They see it as a complete switch. But it's really not. This continues to flow... Uh, continues the flow of all that he's been saying since verse 1 of chapter 12. The attitude that we are to have as believers that encompasses this, all of this that we've been talking about since the beginning of chapter 12 is an attitude of love. This is what Paul is going to deal with for the next three verses. Now, we already mentioned love back in chapter 12 right after he finished talking about our spiritual gifts, he said in verse 9 of chapter 12, love without hypocrisy, or let love be without hypocrisy. We are to have an attitude of love that governs our actions. This is to be genuine, not a critical or a hypocritical type of love. He then went into that list of things that ought to characterize us, what that finished out chapter 12. So what does it mean to have this kind of genuine love? People get confused when we talk about love by what this means, because in our society today, we don't have an accurate concept of what true biblical love is. The main reason being that instead of being concerned with objective truth today, we are concerned more with subjective feelings or emotions. And that's usually what you find out in the world. Instead of looking for a standard of what is right and what is wrong, you hear people talk every day about what they feel to be right, what I think. And this guides the way that some people live. Whatever their feelings are, patterning their lives after a concept or Idea that feels right to them. Some people choose a church. Some people choose an entire religion based on what feels best, right? They sample things and they say, oh, this one feels right to me. I don't like that atmosphere. I don't like that group of people. I didn't like what they said about this. It just didn't feel that that was the right place for me. Instead of trying to find absolute truth, the world looks to define by themselves what is right and wrong based on their own feelings. And when you think about it, what is it that they're actually doing when they do that? They're creating God in their own image. They're the ones that are determining what God should be. You hear people say things like, my God wouldn't do this or that. My God isn't that way. And you ask them, how do, they, how do you know? How do you know God's not like that? Well, I just know. I just don't think or I don't feel that God would do that. Their concept of God isn't based on anything concrete, not on what you'd find in Scripture. It's basically based on what they feel. And it's one thing when the world does that. And that really shouldn't surprise us that the world does that. But this attitude creeps into the church as well because we see it so much in the society around us people hear something being taught or they hear of a decision made by church leadership or they see an area of ministry that is run a certain way and they don't feel like what they've heard or seen is right but you ask them well is it biblical does it match up with scripture and sometimes you get the answer well I'm not a theologian that just doesn't seem right to me just doesn't feel right as believers, when we don't agree with something that we've seen, we search the scripture to find out what's right or not. We don't rely on our feelings or emotions because feelings and emotions are subjective. Now, I'm not denying that we have feelings and emotions, but though we understand that those are not concrete. Those are subjective, they change. It's just like in the last seven verses that we covered here in chapter 13. We have very strong feelings many times about governing authorities these days. But should we let those feelings get in the way of what God tells us here and commands us in those verses? Should we let those feelings change the way that we look and interpret those verses? And the answer is no, we should not. Well, this is the same with the idea of love in the life of the believer. The love that I am to have towards someone is a biblical, well-thought Love of action towards someone. It isn't to be governed by how I feel at any specific point in time. This is not a love that we fall into or fall out of, as we often talk about love. Because that's not biblical love. The love that Scripture knows and teaches is an objective type of love. It is a commanded type of love. It is a functional love. It's a love that I have for someone regardless of how I feel about them. Now there are other kinds of love in scripture. Um, Paul talked about having brotherly love in chapter 12. In fact, when we talk about love in, in English language we have one word, we have love. In the Greek, and you've probably heard this before, there are three or four different types of love that are talked about at different times. And they're used throughout scripture. But when, what we're talking about here, and when Paul is talking about love here, we're talking about a love that is a fruit or a, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It is something that is produced by the Holy Spirit in our lives. We're talking about agapao or agape love. And I don't say that just to throw Greek words at you, but you may have hear, heard that term before, agape love. And how is this type of love Different. What, what does this type of love mean? This is a love of action. This is a willingness to do what is best or right for another person, regardless of the personal cost or inconvenience that it might cause us. And how far does this kind of love go? It knows no boundaries. Turn with me over to the Gospel of John, John chapter 13. We're going to be in a, several different passages, a lot of different passages this morning. Look over in John chapter 13. We're going to make our way to John 15, but I want to start in John 13. I don't want to steal Josh's thunders, but I think it'll be a while before we get to John 13 in in the next hour. But if you look at John 13, go down to verse 34, this is where Jesus is talking to His disciples at the Last Supper. And He says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. So you see here, this is exactly the type of love that we're we're talking about here. Jesus says, I have a new commandment for you. Now, loving one another isn't new. The Old Testament passage, there are Old Testament passages that talk about having love for one another. That's not something new that we're supposed to do, so why does he say this is a new commandment? Because he gives the ultimate example of what kind of love it is that he's talking about. He says, love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. So there's the newness, the love that we manifest towards others ought to be like the love that Jesus manifests towards us. And he goes on to say in verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So having the same type of love that Christ had for us, what does that show? That marks us out. That shows a difference between us and those in the world, right? Like we talked about before, set apart from the world, set apart to God. This is not a normal kind of love. Now, turn over to chapter 15, So he tells them, you are to love as I love. Now keep in mind, Christ had not gone to the cross yet, right? So their example, how has he loved us? Okay, he he loves us, he does a lot of things for us, but he hasn't gone to the cross yet. But look down at verse 12 of John 15. He reminds them of that same command that we saw in chapter 13. He says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Okay, that's what we just saw in chapter 13. Now he goes on in in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now the disciples see, now there's a difference here. As we can see what kind of love that he's actually talking about here and the extent that this love goes to. This is a love that gives the ultimate sacrifice. The greatest thing that we have to give up is what? What? Our life, right? I can give you all my money, but I still have my life. I can give you my possessions. I can, I can give you whatever I have, but I still have my life. If I give up my life, that's it. That's all I have to give. And this is the love that Jesus showed us, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God gave his son. Jesus gave his life for us. This is the type of love that is commanded here. The one who has been declared righteous before God who has been filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of love that we now have towards others. that goes up to that extent. So there's no limit to this type of love. Turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4 tells us that this type of love is from God. We can't talk about love without looking at 1 John 4. Look down at verse 7 of 1 John 4. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. You see here we have the same idea. We are to love one another. People are very ready to say, God is a God of love, right? People say that all the time. God is love. God is a God of love. And that's true. It says right here, God is love. Although a lot of people that say that get the wrong idea about it because they tend then to forget many of God's other attributes. But God is a God of love, the same type of sacrificial love that we're talking about. And one of the marks of the true believer is that we manifest the same type of love that God manifests. He goes on in verse 9. He says, "...by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins." Christ came to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction that can turn away God's wrath. God's wrath? How can God have wrath? I thought God is love. Yes, He is. And in His love, He provided a way of salvation. He provided a way for us to be saved. He provided His Son to die for our sins so that we can be saved. That is the love of action that He showed us to mankind that he showed to the world. And so we see in verse 11, John gives us a conclusion to this. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God did that for us, if he was willing to die for us, then we ought to be willing to have that same kind of love. So we talk about how God loves us. We talk about how God loves the world, right? We see that and see that in John 3.16. People have a tendency to look at those and say, well, that means that he had warm feelings for the world, right? It's a, it was, goes back to that feeling that he thinks everyone is filled with goodness. Well, that's not the love that we're talking about. We need to separate out that thinking. Again, this is a love of action. This is a love that sacrifices and does what's best for others regardless Of feelings and regardless of personal cost. It's a visible type of love. It is one that is expressed through actions. There is an objective quality to it. It's one thing for me to say that I love someone, right? We can go around and say that all day long, that I have feelings for them, but how is that shown? How is that seen? It's through what I do for that person. If I say I love my family but I refuse to provide for them, what does that show? That's not love. That's not me loving them, right? It's when I do things for them. If I say I love God, but I refuse to obey His Word, what does that show about me? Well, turn over to the next chapter in 1 John. If you're still in 1 John, go look in chapter 5, at verse 1. He says here, "'Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him.'" By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and what? Observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. I can say that I love God. People say that all the time. I love God. Oh, of course I love God. I can say that I love God all I want, but if that love is not manifested in my observance of what He asks of me, my obedience to Him, and a, and a love of others who love Him and whom He loves. The, those are my fellow believers. Then I prove otherwise, I prove that I really don't have that same kind of love. A true believer obeys the commandments of God, and a true believer has a sacrificial love for his fellow believers. So it's this type of love that we see as we come to verse 8 of Romans chapter 13. The type of love that He showed us and that we are to have for Him is what sets the framework for the love that we are to have towards others. When we talk about having a love towards others, it isn't simply for them, it's not simply for ourselves, but it's the same as what this entire section of Romans is about. It is offering our bodies up to God as a sacrifice to live in obedience for Him for His glory. He says in verse 8, "'Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another.'" Now I mentioned before that some see this as a segue or a transition into a completely different subject here, and they key in on the financial aspect of this verse and talk about the realm of debts and finances, right? Because he says, "'Owe nothing to anyone.'" And so they say, oh, he's moving, so before he was talking about taxes and now he talks about finances. Well, there is a real sense into which we are to pay our debts. There is a financial obligation that we have. We're not to have any unpaid debts or obligations to anyone. And Scripture does have quite a bit to say about finances and obligations. There are even verses that show the right and wrong ways that we are to borrow money. It doesn't say that we can't borrow money, it gives us instructions on how to borrow money. So yes, we are to be financially responsible in every area. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here. That's not what he's getting at here. What he's saying flows out of what he just said back in verse 7. O is the same word as due in what is due in the last verse. We are to render to all what is owed them in relationship to the governing authorities again. What you owe in taxes, be paid up on those customs, fear, honor. We are to be paid up in all of that. We are to not be lacking in what we owe in those areas. So we're not to be in debt in those areas. We are to be faithful in rendering what we owe there. But the transition comes in, again, when he starts to talk about love. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. This is one area where we do owe, where we can owe where it can always be said that we have not fulfilled our obligations. Now, at first, that might seem odd. Does that mean that I'm not to be paid up in my love for others? Does that mean that it's okay if I don't show love to them or if I haven't showed love for them? As in, I owe them love, but it's okay for me not to love them? No. In fact, it's just the opposite of that is what he's saying here. The reason that this is an exception is because we can never be fully paid up in this area. We never get to a point where we are to think, I have loved them enough. I have fulfilled my obligation of love to that person. We never get to that point. We can show love for one another all day long, and we will still need to show more love to them tomorrow. We saw a picture of this type of obligation way back the beginning of Romans in verse 14 of chapter 1 where Paul saw himself as a debtor to the lost when it came to the gospel. He saw himself as having an obligation to them. He owed a debt to the lost that he had to to keep presenting the gospel to them. It's that same type of debt that is how we should see ourselves when it comes to love towards others. Paul uses the term one another, which would be a reference to fellow believers, right? And that's really what we saw when we were in 1 John. It's what we saw Jesus commanding as well, love one another. But in the second half of the verse, he's also going to talk about his neighbor or our neighbor, which really expands this out even further than that. The idea of love here, especially in light of the commands that he's already given that haven't been, they haven't been restricted to just believers. It's really broadened out to all of those around us. We are to be people that show love, regardless of to who it is. Again, thinking back to what he just said in chapter 12, right, we saw several examples of this. We are to not only not curse those who persecute us, but we are to bless them. We're not to just not speak evil of them, we're to speak well of them. In talking about those who have wronged us, on which we might feel that it's okay to take revenge, people that we feel a need to take revenge, he references the Old Testament quote from Deuteronomy saying, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. And once again, there's that action that we're talking about, providing for the needs of those who would be our enemies. Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 5. In the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount, you read through that, there are many things that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that seem to run contrary to what our natural instincts would be. And in fact, they are contrary to what we would consider natural because the natural thing is the fleshly thing. And again, that's that worldly thing that we're separated from. But instead, look what he says. This is one example. Look at what he says down in verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, you have heard that it was said, 'You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That sounds natural, right? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Even to our enemies, we do love. We do what? We show them love. We pray for them just like what we were seeing in Romans chapter 12. What is the reason? Because we are the sons of God to prove that we are born of the Father. Remember when Jesus said, you show this type of love, you show that you're my disciples when you show this kind of love. Because he is the example, because of what he has done for both the good and the evil, he says here. And this is what we saw in First John, that we show love because we are born of God. And again, it's not having feelings for them. It's not talking about having great feelings for them. We may not have loving feelings for those that persecute us, for those that have wronged us. A few weeks ago when we were studying John chapter 3, Josh walked us through about how there are verses that talk about God's hatred towards sinners. Those who are enemies of God, he has a hatred for them, but yet he also loved them by sending his only begotten son. Some people are easy for us to love, right? We look around and we say, oh, when it comes to my family, when it comes to people that I, uh, I'm close with, fellow believers, right? We do have, they're easy for us to love, and we do have strong feelings for them, right? Strong positive feelings. We, we usually have strong feelings for people that persecute us too, but they're not positive feelings, right? They're negative feelings. But even then, even when we're talking about those that we have strong positive feelings for, sometimes those feelings change, right? We, we have somebody that's close to us. We have, a, we have a falling out. We have a dispute with them. Sometimes friends become enemies. But the point is, even if our feelings for them change, that does not change the obligation that we have to them in any way. We are still to love them. So our love is all-encompassing as to whom we are obligated. What does the fact that we love others show about us? That's where the second part of this verse comes in, if you're back in Romans 13. Romans 13, 8, For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law, it says. That's a very strong statement. He has fulfilled his neighbor, has fulfilled the law, and he brings up the idea here again of the Mosaic law, and we've seen him bring up the law before in different passages. Remember, there are both Jews and Gentiles in this church at Rome. And we've seen throughout the letter that he's addressed both Jews and Gentiles at different times. He even gave us three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where he gave us instructions or or, or details on how Jews and Gentiles both fit within God's plan of salvation. So here again, he brings up the law. Jews were responsible to the Mosaic law. Gentiles never were. It was not given to them. But for anyone, the law was never a source of salvation. It couldn't provide that, it could only bring condemnation. So the question is, how does love fulfill the law? It has to do with what all of the commands in the law were really all about, what they showed. They were all about how the nation of Israel was to live, how they were to function. And they all dealt with how they were to function with one another they had instructions for how they were to behave towards god and they were instructions for how they were to behave towards others right how they were to function as a nation living together as a nation it was all about keeping your path straight and doing what is best for those around you what were your obligations there it's very much like the list that paul is showing us here from the beginning of chapter 12. all of these things that we've seen so far are centered around How we are to function towards God first, but the majority of them have concerned our interactions with what? Other people, right? Everyone around us. And that's very similar to what was in the law. So look with me at verse 9, and what he does here is he he presents some examples of this in verse 9. He says, For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here he just brings up four commandments, four four examples of this, of the Mosaic law. And there's two things about them to note. One, these are things about interacting with other people. And two, they're all examples of not being loving. Committing adultery. Obviously, this one involves other people, right? There's people involved. It would involve a spouse as well as a person with whom someone is committing adultery. Neither of which is showing love, is it? What is it instead? It's not showing love, it's selfishness. Pure and simple, it's seeking what's best for me instead of what's best for someone else. This is the exact opposite of biblical love. Same with murder, right? Again, obviously, where this one involves another person, you kill another person, right? It's something between you and someone else. Love would seek to sacrifice for that person, but murdering someone is pretty much as far on the opposite side of that as you can possibly get. He mentions coveting here, Oh, stealing's the next one. Stealing from someone, again, not loving them, not doing what's best for them, right? If I'm taking something from you, obviously that's not what's best for you, that's what I think is best for me. Coveting, he mentions, right? Maybe not as directly relatable to another person as others, but what are we doing when we covet what someone else has? It's definitely in that same selfish realm again. But it's also not putting them before ourselves. If I see something that someone else uh, see something that someone else has, and my first thought is, "Boy, I wish I had that instead of them," then how is that looking out for them and for their best interests? It's not, is it? That's me looking out for me, not them. I'm concerned again about my own interests. So these are the examples, and they are all along. That same vein, selfishness, not love that comes from God is what's involved here. But again, it's not a complete list, right? Obviously, there were 613 commandments in the law. This is four. So it's not a complete list. And so he adds there at the end, and if there is any other commandment, which there obviously were. But if there is any other commandment, it's not just these four commandments, but any other commandment as well. They are all summed up in one simple statement you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you function with love towards others at all times, then all of your relationships will be taken care of. If I have a sacrificial mindset towards my wife, and if I want what's best for her at all times, how could I possibly cheat on her? How could I possibly abuse her? How could I possibly do something bad towards her? I can't think of another example right? I can't. If I have love, for, love towards my neighbor, if I want what's best for my neighbor, how could I possibly steal from him? How could I possibly covet the things that he has? If I am putting my fellow believer above myself in preference at all times, how could I possibly have an ongoing feud with him, right? You see that in churches quite a bit. People that don't get along, they don't like each other, they don't interact with each other, and when they do, it's always contentious. If I'm putting them above myself in a a place of honor, how could that be my attitude towards them? I can't. That's the point here. Love is where it all starts in our Christian walk. If we have this taken care of, everything else starts to fall neatly into place. Now note this. Who are we to love our neighbors as, does it say? Ourselves, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And this phrase has taken in on all kinds of different discussions. One of which is that in order for us to love others, people say, Well, in order for them to love, in order for me to love them then as, as I should, I need to first learn to love myself. Have you ever heard that one? That's not what this verse is teaching. This is the exact opposite of that. This verse is based on the assumption that we already love ourselves. We know that we already love ourselves. The idea is that the way that we love ourselves is the example of how we are to love others. It should be the same. What is there that I won't do for myself? If my body gets sick, I take care of it, don't I? I go out and I get the chicken soup, or I stay in bed and I curl up under the covers, or better yet, I, I I have my wife get the chicken soup for me and bring me my pillow and whatnot, right? Because I'm taking care of myself. What if my body is hungry? I feed it, I go out and I find food, right? I don't sit there and say, well, too bad for you, stomach. I guess next time you'll eat more for breakfast. Serves you right. No, that's never our attitude, right? If I'm hungry, Oh, poor stomach, I need to find food for you. I put my hand on something hot. What do I do? Ah, serves you right. No, I pull it away. I take care of it. I find ice. I bandage it, right? I do everything that I can for myself already. I don't have any problem loving myself. In fact, the real problem that I, is that I love myself too much. I put myself front and center and I have a hard time putting someone else's needs before my own. That's where I run into trouble. And that's why this command exists. That's why there's no command to say, love yourself more. No, you already love yourself. You need to love others more. Those are the commands. We need to think about it and do it. Loving others as we do ourselves. I don't need to esteem myself more. If somebody tells me that I have a problem with self-esteem, I say, I know, I know I have a problem with self-esteem. I have way too much of it. I don't need to do it more. I need to do it less and I love, need to love my neighbor more. You see, God is telling us, I already love myself. That's why this example is here. Now, in the same way that I already love myself, I am to love others that same way, love my neighbor with that same attitude. If I am in need, I meet that need for myself. What, is, what if my neighbor's in need? I should be just as ready, just as willing to meet their need as well. If I truly love them, I will not act selfishly towards them, which is where Paul goes in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. True biblical love takes others into account. And going along with the examples he used in verse 9, we don't do things that will cause harm to other people. Adultery, right? You used that one. If someone is with another man's wife, is he seeking what's best for that other man? Is he seeking what's best for that wife? Is he seeking what's best for his own wife? Absolutely not. Stealing, same thing. Murder, again, certainly the same thing. It's very hard to make the case, oh, I murdered him for his own good. You can't make that case, right? That doesn't work. What do these all boil down to? Focus on self and not on others. Show me a sin that doesn't focus on self. That's what they all are, right? That sin doesn't exist because that's what they all are, putting our own desires before God's or putting them before someone else. If we are functioning in love, we won't be hurting or wronging our neighbors We are only doing what's best for them. Turn with me over to the book of Ephesians. This is an important topic. That's all the verses we're going through in Romans, but I want to look at two more passages with you on this. Ephesians chapter 5. There's six chapters in Ephesians. The first three are heavy on doctrine. The last three are all about sanctified living. Since all of this... the first three in verse in the first three chapters he talks about this is who you are in christ this is what's true of you this is what god has done for you and in the last three chapters he says now walk in a manner worthy of your calling based on what i have just told you who you are this is how you are to live and it's very much like we're seeing here in these final chapters in romans but look with me first at the last verse in chapter four i know i sent you to chapter five but go back one verse Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And here you start to see the attitude that we are to have here. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. One of the main reasons that people say they have when they're having a hard time loving someone is because they've been hurt by them, right? Something has come up between them. Something has been done against them. I can't love them. You don't know what they did to me. You see this in marriages sometimes, right? People whose marriages are in trouble, they have issues. Well, whatever the relationship, you see what it says here. We are to forgive just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And this is that example again. We talked about this with love, right? It's all related. We were God's enemies. We hated God. We offended God with our sin. Chapter 2 of Ephesians tells us that we were the children of wrath, even as the rest. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. He forgave us. He took us out of that hostile relationship that we had with Him, and He reconciled us. And it's that same type of forgiving attitude that we are to have towards others. This is to be the standard for all of my behavior towards others. If God would do that for me, then I am to do that for them, for others. Okay, now get to verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma." You see here we are to be imitators of God in this God is the standard the way that he treats us we are to treat who everyone else his is the pattern that we are to follow the way that the world treats one another right we look around we say oh this is what's normal in the world this is how the world treats people that's not the standard we look The way that our parents treated each other, right? A lot of times we say, oh, yeah, they treated each other great. Or sometimes, well, they didn't treat each other very well. They're not the standard, regardless of whether it was good or bad. The way that someone else that we might admire and respect treats others, right? They might do a great job of it. They may be wonderful at how they love and treat others. But still, they are not the standard. Who is the standard? God is the standard. We are to walk in love. We are to give up ourselves, sacrifice for those around us, just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. That's the example that we have to live by. I want to go to one other passage before we end 1 Corinthians 13. How can we talk about love without going to 1 Corinthians 13? The chapter on love. This gives us our greatest picture of what this kind of love looks like. We came here to 1 Corinthians 13 back when we were talking about um, love being without hypocrisy in chapter 12 of Romans. And we saw just the first few verses, I think. Because the pattern is the same. 1 Corinthians 12 going into chapter 13 and and the first half of Romans, uh, chapter 12. Paul talks about spiritual gifts how we are to function and use them within the church. And then he says that our use of them is to be governed by love. So in the first few verses here, that's what Paul talks about. He says in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And basically what he's saying here is that if I do anything, but I don't do it with love, it's worthless. That's what he's getting at. I might be the most gifted teacher. I might be the best servant in the church, or I might give up my home every week for a, a D group or a Bible study. But if I am doing it Doing any of that without love, then that's simply useless. It's nothing. So, then starting in verse 4, what do we have? Paul gives us a picture of what this type of love looks like. We could spend a week just on this, multiple weeks even, but we'll just read through this for now. What does love look like? Love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, he says at the beginning of verse 8. Love never fails. Now, we look at this list, and when we're thinking about our spouse, when we're thinking about our family, when we're thinking about our closest friends, we might look at these things and say, yeah, that's it. That's how I love them. I have no issues with this. But what about when it comes to those who have wronged us in some way? Someone who was our enemy. How does this list strike us then? Are we patient with those around us? Would we say that that defines us, that we have a patience in love for others? Do we act in a way that doesn't seek for our own benefit but is always seeking for their benefit? Do we endure all things with them? One of the hardest ones here is, do we take into account a wrong suffered? Do we have a list against someone else, maybe even against our spouse? Do we have that little notebook? Maybe it's a physical notebook. Maybe it's a mental notebook. Where we're ready to point out all the things that they've done over the last X number of years. Oh, here's my list. Oh, just, I'm just waiting, waiting for the time when they say something because then I'm going to pull out my list. That's not what love does. That's not what we are to do. Again, that's what forgiveness is all about. Remember Ephesians 4.32, we forgive each other just as Christ forgave us. This is a concept that is totally foreign to the world. This is not what the world sees as normal. Everywhere you go, it's all about self, building up self. That's what the world promotes. It shows the world's concept of love. That's what the world's concept is. That's not the type of love that we should be concerned about that we should have anything to do with. Biblical love, agape love, is focused on doing things for others. Love in the world is focused on doing things for yourself. I have a feeling of love as opposed to, I will do whatever is necessary for you. Once again, we come back to subjective versus objective truth. It's not what I feel to be right, it's what God's word tells me is right. Romans 13:10 again Paul says love therefore is the fulfillment of the law repeating what he stated in verse 8 only a child of God can have this kind of love we saw this when we were in 1 John chapter 4 God is love this is the love that he manifests in us this is the love that he pours out into us if we belong to him this is the love that we will show others all that the law required can be summed up in one word love Love of God, love of others, sacrificing of self for the sake of someone else. If I truly love others, that will be evident in my life through my actions. Doing what is best for them, doing what is right before God. We need to remember this. We need to keep all this in mind with what we do every day, with everyone that we're around. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we have become His beloved, then we are to be characterized by this kind of love. This includes every relationship. It includes with one another here. It includes with everyone in this church. It includes with our spouse, husband or wife. You hear that? People get divorced today. What do you hear? Well, we just fell out of love. I don't love them anymore. Well, that's not an option because you are commanded to love them. It's not about how you feel. It's about what you are to do. Hopefully, especially when it comes to our spouses, hopefully there is that feeling. I'm not saying we don't have feelings towards people. But if not, that doesn't change the command from God. Walk in love as Christ loved you. We ought to love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are never free from our obligation to love others. That is the only debt that we will ever, we will never be able to pay in full. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to You, and thank You, Lord, once again for our time here together. We thank You for this passage of Scripture. We thank You, Lord, for the sacrifice that You made for us, the way that You loved us by sending Your Son to die for us, Lord. We thank You for that. We thank You for forgiving us when we were unforgivable. And, Lord, we just pray that that You would help us to manifest that same type of love in all of our relationships with people. Pray, Lord, that we would be known as people that that love others. Pray, Lord, that you would just help us to understand that, help us, Lord, to implement this in our lives and help us to just honor you, Lord, with, with the way that we follow this command. We thank you, Lord, for this time here once again. We pray, Lord, that as we move into the next hour that you would give Josh the ability that he needs, Lord, to teach us once again from the scriptures. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word in the Gospel of John, and we pray, Lord, that. As we worship you, that you would be honored and glorified by all that we do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.